evening. Please uh, turn to that book in your Bible. We're going to be looking at Malachi. We're continuing, actually finishing our little mini-series going through the Minor Prophets. Now you might notice we haven't preached all of them, for which I apologise. I ran out of opportunities. Uh, Maybe we'll pick them up again at some point later. Uh, And I did change what we were doing um, tonight at fairly short notice, so apologies again for that, because I wanted to actually bring us to a nice conclusion uh, with the book of Malachi. It just feels like we've got to the to the end of the Old Testament. Uh, but we are going to be doing a, a sort of sweeping overview through the book. You could preach a series on this book, and there's some wonderful content in it. But we're going to go through the whole thing and get a flavor of what's going on in the book tonight. So let's pray before we do that. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us. We thank you that it is a living word. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the way that it sometimes rebukes us where we need rebuking and corrects us and trains us. And Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to have ears open to hear what you've got to say to us. Please help us by your spirit this evening, we ask in your name. Amen. Okay, well, I have unfortunately stapled, got staples everywhere, so I apologize. Good. So, now, I, I, looking at the audience, I don't know how this will go down, but... Some will maybe remember the German-based pop sensation, Millie Vanilli. Any, anyone remember Millie Vanilli? Who shot to fame in the late 1980s. Yes, Liz, excellent. <coughs> they shot to fame in the late 1980s, winning the Grammy Award for the Best New Artist in 1990. The vocal duo Fab Morvan and Rob Pilatus gave a live performance that same year, which was recorded by MTV and watched all around the world, live. It was at the Lake Compounds theme park in Connecticut. But during the performance, it was very memorable, the recording of the song, Girl, You Know It's True, (laughs) jammed and began to skip, resulting in one of the most embarrassing moments in popular music history. And if you were watching it, it was absolutely hilarious and cringing at the same time. The truth was revealed. Millie Vanilli, their sound was actually created by Frank Farian, featuring the vocal talents of other singers. And uh, Morvan and Pilatus did not sing at all on any of their records. Now, I don't know why that would surprise us, (laughs) because I'm pretty sure that's the case for a lot of artists, especially of that era. After this, though, the Grammy Award they received was stripped from them, And at least 26 different lawsuits were filed under various U.S. consumer fraud protection laws. Stunning, isn't it? Now, that story uh, raises a lot of questions in my mind. I don't know about yours when you think about that. Had nobody noticed beforehand, I don't believe it. Someone must have noticed. Didn't the sound engineers know that this was going on? Obviously, if they did, they weren't on the ball enough on that particular evening to quickly run over and stop the thing jumping and skipping. Apparently, the 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 main vocalist there, after the 12th repetition, he tried to mime along and pretend like he was saying this phrase over and over. Then he was so embarrassed, he just tucked tail and walked off the stage. How do you manage to be in that ministry, that, that industry even, for several years without anyone noticing that every performance is a fake? That's the question, isn't it? Obviously, you have to be a very good mimic, very good faker. 
And the worrying truth about the church, certainly in the West, is that it is likewise plagued with mimics. Plagued with mimics up and down this country. There are mimics and fakes that come along to church. The great Puritan pastor, Jonathan Edwards, fought furiously against nominalism, you know, Christian in name, in the early 18th century in his church in Northampton, Massachusetts. Eventually, it contributed, his battle against this contributed to him being thrown out of his church. People in his day thought that they were Christians because they had been brought up in a Christian colony as members of the Christian British Empire. Uh, and they'd been baptized as infants, attended church all their lives. How dare the pastor suggest that they were not the genuine article? But Edwards was looking for something else in his congregants. He was not convinced by a sort of a, a mere outward show of religiosity. He was concerned about the state of their hearts. Had they been transformed by God's grace through the power of his Holy Spirit? Were they real? Were they genuine? Did they truly love the Lord that they merely claimed allegiance to? Did they love the Lord? And church history has been plagued by that problem. You can read about it in just about every era. Well, since, uh, since Constantine, really, since the uniting of church and state, it's always been a problem. Whenever there's peace in a country, when persecution stops... And people see, actually look at the church and see a wonderful, warm community of, of people that the church is. They want to be part of it, and why wouldn't they? And actually, the problem will only get worse, won't it? In a culture that we live in right now that really is lacking community and feeling the pain of it, they're going to start looking at the church and seeing that we have something different if we're doing it right, and they'll want to be part of it. And the trouble is that all too often, people who just come in for the, those reasons become imposters. They want the blessings of being part of a wonderful church community without being willing to deny themselves, take up a cross daily and follow Christ. And without even knowing it, their Christianity becomes a mere front, doesn't it? They're lip-syncing along with everybody around them. The music's playing and the lips are moving. But it's fakery. And... They'd hate to be referred to this way, but what I want to say is it, what they're doing is a form of practical atheism. It's practical atheism. Confessing with your mouth that there is a God, but living then like there isn't. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. Why would I call that practical atheism? Because they're saying that they believe in God, but they're only really believing in God as a, as a sort of concept. And it's making no impact on their hearts and on their lives and on what happens during the week. They live as if there's no God. Now, as we read through the book of Malachi, if you read through the whole of the book, and even probably what we've read right now, you'll notice that the whole book takes a form of question, then answer. So God's asking questions and then answering all the way through the book. It's a series of questions that the people of Malachi's day are no doubt asking in their hearts if they're not actually asking with their lips, if they're not actually vocalizing them. But God knows the heart, and he exposes these questions with some incisive answers. So did you notice, this book, as you read through it, reads a bit like, especially if you read the whole book, it reads a bit like 
most of the other sort of prophets who railed against the people for their empty worship and their idolatrous behavior, for their immorality uh, and for their idolatry before the exile. So it reads like a book that's written before the exile. But the shocker is, the surprise is, it's actually written a long while after the return of Christ. I had a, a, di- a little diagram that goes up there, which we've been using. Is it, is it available? Oh, Dickie's on the, uh, on the desk there. Can I see if you can pop it up? We'll need it later for the, um, the points, while they're trying to work that out. So Judah's been taken into uh, slavery and into captivity. That's happened. That's past history. Uh, they've, they've, they've returned from that under the authority of the Persians. They've come back to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. They've repaired the walls of the city. The sacrificial system is back up and running now. The temple's fully running. And finally, the dust has settled, and they've been allowed to return to sort of normal, everyday life, Israeli life, everyday life in Judah. The whole community also is is waiting. They're waiting for some big stuff to happen. Because prophets have come, lots of prophets have come, and they've, they've, they've given promises from God that have been very, very exciting. The prophets have said, let me recap at the end of this series, that the nation will be prosperous and blessed, that the mountains would drip with wine and harvests would be abundant. They've been told everyone's going to sit in their gardens eating fruit, Amos chapter 9. You'll all sit in your own garden. They would enjoy the shade of their own fig trees and vines, and no one would make them afraid, according to Micah. The glory of their, what is currently a makeshift sort of temple, really, not built anything like the the, the standard that Solomon built it to, cobbled together in some ways, would one day, they've been promised, be more splendid than in the days of Solomon. The nations would come to worship, according to Haggai. Why all of this? Well, because the big promise is that God is going to send his king, one out of Bethlehem in Judah, according to Micah chapter 5. And that king will be a shepherd to the nation. He will protect them in the strength of the Lord. And the greatness of that king, they've been told, will, will reach to the ends of the earth. His fame will be known everywhere. And he'll bring peace. Put that all together, that collection. Get, get under the skin of being... One of these people living in Jerusalem in these days with all the excitement of those things. Now, things have already happened. Things have started moving, haven't they? The the, the promise of returning from exile has come true. They've got a temple back. That's true. They're back in the city. It's true. When is the next promise happening? When will the next fulfillment come? It's an expectation, is it? So God's, God's, God's done all of these from them, and then the years roll on and on and on, and it's silence. Nothing more seems to be happening. It's like a, like a firework that's gone, you know, with all this great excitement. And you watch the fire, then it goes up into the air. And then you're waiting for that beautiful explosion and all of the colours, but nothing. Nothing. Like it's a dud. And all they had to do was, at this point, to, to hang tight, stay faithful to God, and wait. Wait for the promises to come. But waiting is hard. Waiting's hard, isn't it? Don't you find waiting hard? And as the years rolled on, they started to lose 
the faith that had been rekindled by those prophets with their exciting promises. And they started to drift, drift away from true worship. And they drifted into a sort of empty form and ritual. And that's what we're really looking at in this book as we, as we speak through it. The book contains a timely warning for us too as we wait. Because we are waiting for the return of that same king they were waiting for, the arrival of. Waiting is still hard, isn't it? And especially if you are only faking it. If that's the case, then it is very possible as the years roll on that you will drift into a form of practical atheism where you know, it, you, your, your faith will only be really just words from your mouth. And it, your actions will betray a total disbelief in God, actually, a practical disbelief. I want you to take a look. We're going to look through them quickly at seven causes of practical atheism. I was going to have them up on the screen, but I think it's died for us. So the first one is this, if you're, if you're keeping track. First one is doubt. Doubt. So chapter 1, verse 1. Have a look with me. Verse 1, a prophecy. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? How have you loved us, God? You say that you love us, but we see really no signs that it's true. Day to day, it's very hard to believe you love us, God. That's a quite a, a shocking question to ask, isn't it? God's love for his people is what brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land, defeated their enemies, provided all their needs for nearly a thousand years. God's love. But they just can't see that. They can't see it. God answers their questions by, by actually going back even further to Jacob, the father of the founding father of the nation of Israel, Jacob. Jacob was one of two twin sons born to Isaac, the son of Abraham. And even though Jacob was the younger twin of the two, and inheritance privileges should rightly have gone to his older brother, albeit only a, you know, a few minutes probably older, Esau, it was Jacob that God chose to continue the line of his promises, his special line. And God continues in verse 2, have a look. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, it was not, if you know the story, <laughs> because Jacob was a nicer guy, or because he was more trustworthy than his brother. He was a liar and he was, he was a cheat, wasn't he? It was not because there was something admirable in Jacob that God chose him. It was simply God decided to do so. God decided to do so. And that is how God always loves. He chooses to love and he loves with a steadfast, committed love. From that point onwards, God resolved. That's the story of, of Jacob and Esau. God resolved, gave his word, I will love Jacob, whereas Esau I've hated. I will keep on relentlessly loving Jacob. That was the promise they lived under. <coughs> He's later named Israel, wasn't he? But my hand will be consistently be against Esau and his offspring, the Edomites. And in actual fact, that's where verses 1 to 5 go, right up to the end of that first section. 
Israel had always had God's steadfast, unchanging covenant love. They'd lived under that. And though they've been disciplined and judged because God doesn't let wickedness go unchecked, he had never failed to love them. There'd never been a lapse in God's love. But because things weren't presently happening the way that these people expected and hoped that they would, now they'd become full of doubts. And I wonder, is that what we're like? Is there a bit of that in your heart? You only think that God loves you when he's meeting your expectations in life. Do you start to doubt he does when you don't think he is meeting your expectations in life? It's the first telltale sign, isn't it? It's the thin end of the wedge. It's practical atheism. It's practical atheism. So that's the first thing, doubt. Then the second thing is there's no fear of God. In verses 6 to 14, God reveals this next symptom of growing unbelief in verse 6. Have a look. He says, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, well, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. There's a growing lack of God, says Malachi, in the nation. Verse 8 tells us that they were playing fast and loose with the sacrificial system. You've perhaps picked up on that. They knew that the religion of Israel required sacrifices and offerings to be made to God. Gifts to show honour to him, to glorify him. And so what they did was to go through their livestock and pick out all of the duds. They'd find the mangiest, crippled, deformed animal in the flock, give it a bit of a sprucing up, and then take it down to the temple. No sense wasting a perfectly good lamb if all you're going to do, really, is to slaughter it and to burn it, right? But the law stipulated it matters. A lamb without defect. They were to give their best to God. They were not to give their rejects to God. The whole thing betrays a heart that says, what will it matter? God won't really care, will he? God won't, God won't know actually. There's never been any consequences when we've brought a sort of subpar sacrifice in the past. God doesn't seem to really know we're doing it. The important thing is just to do the ritual, turn up with the goods, do the stuff, go home. But God does know, as evidenced by Malachi. He does know. He does see. He does care. Second half of verse 8, look, look what God says. Try offering them to the governor. There's a good suggestion. See what he says. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Go on, take that mangy, deformed goat. Go take that as a, as a payment to a debt to your governor and see how he responds. It'll be a little bit like us sort of you know, getting, getting the tax bill back from the inland revenue and thinking, I'll go down the tax office, you, go, you clear out the loft, you find an old box of buttons or something, and, and you take it in and you say, I know I've got this massive tax bill here, but look, I've got, I've got this really nice box of buttons that I've found. It took a long time to collect them. You'll like these. You can't do that. You wouldn't do that with a mere man, says God. Why would you do that with me? Why do you treat, treat your creator as less than that? 
And not only that, but the priests themselves. Well, look at how they're described. It's, it's kind of like, to be honest, we can't be bothered. That's their attitude. The priests themselves. Those with the honor of serving in the temple. Have a look at verse 10. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great amongst the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you, he's talking to the priest, you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff contemptuously at it, says the Lord. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Nothing at the temple's been done thinking, God sees and we must give our best. We must do our best. How can we serve the living God from our hearts? I wonder if that's you. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's an exaggerated example. But do you do the things you do because it's what people expect? Or do you really do it because you, you want to please God in what you're doing? And that's your driving motivation. Do you know? Do you do it because you know he sees and you know that he cares about the things you do and how you do them and why you do them? Well, a third symptom here of this practical atheism is that there's no care for God's word. We're going to speed up a little bit. Chapter 2 starts with a section from verses 1 to 9, again addressed directly to the priests, and it concerns them. God compares them with their forefather Levi in this section, who taught the law to the people. Look at verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is a messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You see, if God effectively does not exist and the way that they're behaving in the temple would indicate that that's what the conclusion they've sort of come to, if he's absent and uninvolved in our life, then why bother to actually teach his word accurately? After all, nobody really likes God's word. It doesn't scratch where they're itching, does it? I wonder if there's a little bit of this in you and I. When you talk about God with your friends, what, what do you want to get across to them? How do you tackle that? Do you only ever tell people the things that you know that will go down well with them? Or are you, are you really willing to cross that little line into the uncomfortable? The things that maybe they won't like hearing quite so much. Do you paper over the harder truths? The truths that they really need to hear? Are you representing God's word rightly? Well, the fourth issue is unfaithfulness. In the second half of chapter 2, we see people who are characterized by an unfaithful character. That's, the, that's their character. It's most clearly seen in their relationships, and that's where you see faithfulness, isn't it? Relationships. Look at verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary that the Lord loves. How? By marrying women who worship a foreign god. It raises that old question, doesn't it, that every youth group wants to talk about. Does God really care who I marry? Surely who I marry is my personal business. I'm going to have to live with them, and that's going to be my relationship, and it's, it's all you know, focused on me. 
Surely marriage is just my personal business? Wrong. Wrong, says Malachi. Now, this is particularly interesting because only decades earlier, in living memory, Nehemiah has taken them to task over this very issue. He writes, in his, like, it's like a journal entry in Nehemiah 13, verse 25. Listen to how strong this is. He writes, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I mean, he's not mucking about, is he? And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons and for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? I love Nehemiah. Don't you? He, he can't just say something. He preaches. He wants to preach it every time. But obviously, he had not made a strong enough impression on these people. Only a few short years later, they're back at it. God's people, and let's be fair, especially the men, just couldn't stop being enticed by those exotic women around them. Just couldn't, they never really got a handle on this through their whole history, did they? And the people were complaining that God was not looking with favor at their offerings. But look in verse, 30, in, in verse 14 how God replies. You ask, why? Why am I not looking in favor of what you bring me? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Seems that the people, maybe like our people today, have embraced a divorce culture. Just be so careful in the church that we don't, we don't go down that road. They're discarding their wives to pursue these foreign women. Shocking as that may sound. And God makes it clear. For this wickedness, he will withhold his blessing from them. Verse 16, look, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be faithless, unfaithful. Fantastic. I mean, you could preach a whole series just on this little section, couldn't you? That our culture badly needs to hear. Are you faithful in your relationships? Are you faithful there? Are you that faithful friend? God really cares about faithfulness, doesn't he? Because he is a faithful God, and we should be faithful people. Second question, are you actually kept faithful by the knowledge that God cares about your faithfulness? Are you just faithful because you're a decent sort of upstanding guy or, or, or girl? Or because you know that God cares about your faithfulness? God sees the marriage vow as binding, even if you don't. Fifthly, unbelief, just briefly. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, says Malachi. How, they ask. And then as you read those next couple of verses, in summary, by the constant accusation of injustice pointed towards God. All day, they, all day long, they look around the world around them, yeah, they pick up a newspaper, whatever they have then, and they flick through the reports, of the grim sort of news, the bad news pages, and they point out everywhere that they see injustice in the papers. 
and then say, you know what, if there is a God, right, well, he certainly doesn't seem to be able to tell good from evil because look at the state of our world. Why doesn't he act? Where is the God of justice? And that, that is either lack of belief in a sovereign God who's in control over the world, which is bad, or it's actually even worse to be judging God. God, you're getting this wrong. As if you know better and you can run the world more justly than God does. Well, chapter 3 tells us the last two signs have drifted to practical atheism and they are robbing God and murmuring. Have a look at them just briefly. Robbing God in verse 8 of chapter 3. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? See, the tithes, we know this, don't we? They were the required 10%, the 10th of the produce that they were to bring to God by law. So every tenth sheep or goat, you go through it, or, or, or chicken or whatever it is, every tenth sack of grain went to God. It was offered to God and used to provide for the Levites and to provide for the temple. But it seems that these people were not just picking off the worst, mankiest animal, the nastiest sort of odds and sods of the crops, but they were, in fact, also on top of that, shortchanging God, giving him less than his due, less than a tenth. It's the equivalent, again, go back to the tax return, of, of fiddling your tax return, but not to a mere human government, fiddling God's tax return, as it were. And the irony is, God points out, that by doing this, they're hurting themselves. Because God, <laughs> God doesn't need any of it from you. That's the point, isn't it? So he says in verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. What a wonderful promise. We love verses like that. Please bear in mind that it was made to Old Testament Jews living in Jerusalem in 400 BC and not to us today. But it is a wonderful example of the character of God. It reminds us of the unchanging, generous character that God has. We're not commanded to tithe our income anymore, but the New Testament does instruct us to be cheerful givers, to trust him to supply all of our needs every single day, and to be generous as he is generous. If all you can muster up is the will to give a tenth, well, fine. But God wants an abundant, generous, cheerfully giving heart, doesn't he? But that's not the heart of these people Malachi's writing to. They were just interested, and it's evident, isn't it? They're interested in, what can we get away with? What can we get away with? So it looks like we're doing the right thing, but, you know, we're not. The story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 comes to mind, doesn't it? Who would really know how much profit you made this year? Who would know if you only declared 500 sheep and you really had 550? Saving of Five sheep from the tax bill. That, that's lots of kebabs, isn't it? It's not like the temple inspectors are going to come round and, and account for everything, are they? Who would know? Who would care? God would. God would. Well, finally, murmuring. Verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? 
You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out all his requirements and going around like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we, are, we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. You see what's going on here? It's the age-old sin of grumbling, isn't it? We would be better off just packing it all in and going off and being with the pagans. At least they are prospering. They've got a much easier life. Where's all this serving God getting us? We've got all these do's and don'ts and rituals. Burdensome laws. But the evildoers, they just say what they like and they get away with it, live how they like and they get away with it. Now, when you look at all of this waning belief, this sliding into apostasy going on here, it really starts to read a little bit like the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're, if you're familiar with that book. It's like the man here who looks at the world from the point of view of someone who thinks there is nothing else than just what is under the sun. He's a practical atheist. And it is deceptively easy to go down that same road if you are just faking it as a Christian. What would stop you? What would stop you? So please examine yourself in the light of the warnings of God's word through Malachi. Let me run you through this. Are you a practical atheist? Do you constantly doubt God's love for you? When you contemplate what Christ did for you at Calvary, do you still not know that you're loved? Are you still full of doubt? Do you think on some level God's not watching, he's not aware of things in your life, that you can somehow pull the wool over his eyes, that your sin will in fact not find you out, that you can get away with things? When you talk about God, is it the God of the Bible that you're talking about, or is it a God of your invention? How would you know which God you're talking about? Do you know that God? Is there, do you have a relationship with the God you profess to follow? Do you actually understand why you need to be any different from the world around you? Does it make sense to you why you need to be different from the world? Why faithfulness is actually so important? Are you committed to the covenants that you've made before God? Are you quick to say in your heart, That's, that is not fair? Which really means God is not fair. Or have you learned to be content to let God be God and to accept that he sees the whole picture and you only see a tiny little part? Where are you at? Are you tight-fisted with your money? Perhaps you call it being careful. Do you find yourself reluctant to give to God? Do you serve out of wrong motives? Caring only really what people will think, but not really giving a thought to what God thinks. When you see the pleasurable things of this world around you and people enjoying sin, the way that your non-Christian friends live, are you battling the temptation to just jack it all in and join in with them? They're really good questions to ask, aren't they? And that's, that's what's being asked here in Malachi, isn't it? That's Malachi. Now, to an extent... Those are the burdens that every Christian is fighting with. I know that. We all have moments of doubt, don't we? But they could also be signs that you're faking it. And you need to examine your heart to see whether that's true. Why? Because 
Because once you really grasp the reality of life above the sun, once you really understand the incomparable worth of Christ and the, the passing poverty of all that the world offers, once you grasp the difference between a brief sort of 80 years here and eternal life, if you really understand the horrors of hell and the unsurpassable joy of heaven, you would give it all up in a heartbeat for Christ. And you would never turn back. Now, the psalmist struggled with these very issues. He's like a, a person of God struggling with these issues. It had begun to appear, he says, that evil men had a much better deal than those who tried to stay faithful to God. And so he writes in Psalm 73, My feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. I'd almost gone under, basically, he's saying. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's dealing with this very issue, isn't he? But the breakthrough comes at the end of that psalm when he finally grasped those over-the-sun realities. And he concludes this way, It troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. And that is how Malachi's prophecy ends, actually. Chapter 4 reminds the reader that the day is coming. The day is coming. Look at chapter 4, verse 1 as we close. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, you who are not faking it, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. What an amazing image. We are to wait. We're in days of waiting, but we are to wait. And waiting is hard, but we wait with hope. Had they, in Israel, in Malachi's day, just held on a few more centuries as a nation, they would have seen the fulfillment of the last two verses of the book, the arrival of Elijah, otherwise known as John the Baptist, who came to prepare the hearts of the people for the arrival of that great and awesome king they were so excited for and waiting for, Jesus Christ. And we likewise should hold on and wait. The day is coming when that same king will return in glory and he will greet his chosen ones with well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master.